If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. These guys are severely uh, running out of fundraising ideas. Christopher has actually missed the boat on completing 100 laps of his garden before his 100th birthday. So (laughs) basically, uh, if you can donate some money to these guys so that they can get all the gear that they need to get. Captain Tom has actually recorded a cover of You'll Never Walk Alone (laughs) as well. So maybe if we can get these guys to like 50 Patreons, they're sitting at 33 right now, if we can get them to... 50 or even just 40 uh, then Chris, Mark and Dave will record a version of Love Can Build a Bridge that would be uh, quite nice actually, I'm, up, I'm up for that, I'm up for that. <laughs> the best part of that Captain Tom song is his B-side cover of About a Girl <laughs> what? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a current joke don't worry about it alright oh, it's went right over my head okay. uh, I just want to say a big thank you to Coy Robinson and to Greg Gorry who both updated their pledges this week that's pretty awesome work guys thank you very much yeah, the rewards yeah. may or may not be coming <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome to Unsung again in lockdown. A remote- lockdown edition! Yeah, it's going to be the lockdown mm. season, I think. This week we're joined by Vicky Henry, uh, and we're not joined by Dave, so, you know, tag, <laughs> just like tag out, tag in system. <laughs> Poor bastard. He's at, he's, at, he's at his wit's end right now. He just spent an hour, he ran to a studio nearby and there was a woman making tarot cards live on air for, I mean, for Glasgow's demented population. And, That's uh, not a joke, by the way. <laughs> That's true, it's happened. totally true. So then he ran back to his house, uh, he tried to turn his laptop on, it updated, then I think he tried to move it and he dropped it and now it doesn't work <laughs> and then he tried mm. his phone for about 40 minutes and I mean they just the whole thing was jinxed from the start uh, so or it's a pretty strong message yeah yeah we, we let him off the hook <laughs> it's 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 some length to go to just because you didn't do your homework that's all I'm gonna say right <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah we're going to press on without David. Uh, so, Vicky, if you can just... Uh, I was going to say make your voice deeper, but maybe actually make it a wee bit higher. <laughs> I don't think that's possible. And please... We'd create a high voice. <laughs> it's stratty. <laughs> it's a laugh that's fooling nobody. <laughs> so, yeah, Mark, do you have any stories for this week? Uh, I made pretzels yesterday. Really? From scratch? Yeah. Did it turn out well? I did, actually, aye. Yeah. How big were they? Uh, some of them were tiny because <laughs> doing the knot thing was not very good. But some of them were like massive, like this big. Like so I have a question, right? So are they the big floppy soft pretzels that you get 
or were they actually the shiny glazed kind of you could tap them off a desk kind? Because I've never really understood which one is the the true pretzel. So the, the it's the it's the big floppy one. <laughs> um, that's that's apparently how they come in at American malls, and that's where the recipe sort of of a pretzel comes from. Apparently, so they're like a pastry, basically supposed to be. Where did the solid glazed ones comes from? The petrified pretzels. No idea. Maybe maybe somebody just like forgot to put them in the fridge for or whatever, and then I thought, hmm. No, you know the ones I mean. Yeah. yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It's yeah. like the it's like the pretzel version of Melba toast. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's kind of it's, it's got that kind of really shiny thing with the, the salt grains sort of trapped in amber. I reckon they're probably just dry, <laughs> to be honest, because they're kind of made Game. the same way. I mean, my dad have been really getting into chocolate raisins lately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're brilliant. <laughs> I, I chocolate like started a lemon sketch. <laughs> <laughs> chocolate raisins and drinking at ten in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> this is our new life now. <laughs> Um, so Vicky you've joined us I'm, I'm really really glad you're here because I've got some backup because way way back when we started doing this podcast within I think the first half dozen episodes I'd said that I really wanted to do PJ Harvey as an episode and those guys were like I don't know anything <laughs> it's like oh man it's too big a she's too big an artiste to, to not uh-huh. have a second opinion on really it's so much homework as well so I'm very glad you're here for it Mark I'm hoping you had a, a chance to listen to some PG Harvey yeah so I spent a lot of the last week playing a game called God of War whilst listening to PG Harvey which was kind of a weird process <laughs> um, but yeah man uh, started off listening to it was kind of like I don't really see the point of this I don't get it but she grown me quite a lot I think the thing about her was I actually assumed she had a bigger catalogue than she does given that her first Same. record came out in 1991 I think I was daunted by it and then I was like you know what she's not actually got that many albums and she's had some pretty big spaces between those albums yep. I think it's just she's got a, a, a huge legacy like she's got a massive reputation as well and I, I, I guess it's not really reflected uh, she's not as prolific Mm-hmm. I guess she's got nine studio albums, right? But like she's done a lot of collaborations as well, so That's that kind of maybe fleshes it out a bit. Yeah, makes it feel like she's more prolific, maybe. I think I think it's also fair to say, it's certainly for the vast majority of her earlier albums, that the quality more than justified the lack of quantity as well. Um, but we'll go into it in a wee bit of detail. Uh, Vicky, you listen to Unsung Podcast every week. If you could change one thing, what would it be? Oh God, that, you've totally put me on the spot. Uh, well, do you know what? Uh, I like the fact that you've had like more girls coming on the show. That's been really good. I really enjoyed the podcast you had with Anna and um, Tate as well, girl yeah. from the, the band. Yeah. It's really nice to hear other voices occasionally. Not that I don't love you guys to bits, but I think that's really a positive thing. Cool. Well, there you go. You're on. Three women in three years. That's not too bad. <laughs> Progress. This is, this is your woke music podcast. We're dressing the balance one year at a time. No, uh, I, I liked it when you had uh, Craig and the boy Faith, Fat Goth and stuff like that on as well. It's kind of, it's nice to have, uh, to make sing, mix things up a wee bit sometimes. What you mean is, it? your favourite parts are the parts where we're not speaking. <laughs> 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 no, it's just, it's kind of, it's nice to hear from other people. Agreed. Yeah, agree. Um, let's hear from PJ Harvey. We, we had to, like, okay, so you and I both had kind of spoken about this a little bit in advance, and I think we both agreed on is this desire. I kind of attributed that to you last week, then maybe getting ahead of myself, but <laughs> I, I wasn't. I don't think it's inaccurate. You, I mean, you'd said you thought it was yeah. her most underrated album. That doesn't necessarily equate with her best album or or, no. or your favourite album by her. But I, I I feel pretty strongly that it's underrated in comparison to the albums around it when you weigh up oh, all completely. the different factors. You agree? Definitely, I would agree with that. Yeah, completely. Right, mm-hmm. we'll go into a wee bit more detail about me making the case for that because um, PJ Harvey's pretty famous, so I think some people might think she's one of those people that are like, well, is, it, is it unsung? But... I, th- I think it's it's all relative and that one certainly is so yeah Is This Desired by PJ Harvey um, You want to do a bit of background or will I? You go ahead and I'll chip in. Okay, uh, 
just some basics uh, She was born in Dorset Which is in the south of England In 1969 uh, She's 50 years old now I think Two years after Kurt Cobain Which I guess makes sense in hindsight But I think of her as being Maybe half a generation younger than him But no, apparently not By the way, Dorset And this will become relevant Is a it's from a very conservative part of England and a very sort of middle class white picket fence sort of green pleasant land type area of of the United Kingdom. But speaking personally, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouths, but it's an area of the UK that I find it amongst the hardest to relate to simply because it is so it seems so conscious of its Englishness. And I think PJ Harvey at times in her career is hyper conscious of her Englishness. Oh now, yeah. Obviously I'm very conscious of my Scottishness But I think there's a sort of sense of other to that And I think the thing about Englishness Certainly in the context of the UK Is that it's the majority It's the it's the sort of orthodoxy And so to take pride in the orthodoxy Sometimes seems kind of weird And it definitely jars with some people So folks that you would think are a fan of PJ Harvey Have some beefs with her Some of them are maybe merited Others are... Maybe a little bit unfair uh, But a lot of them tend to arise from the alienation they feel by her pride And that sort of, I don't know, you can't really call it class But just that sort of uh, identity I mean, the, the fox hunting thing will come up As many people went off her uh, Based on comments she had regarding fox hunting in the UK uh, Which was banned in the late 90s and she was asked about it And she, along with a number of other celebrities Including people like Harry Enfield were Voiced a bit of, not necessarily support for fox hunting But opposition to the ban on fox hunting And that that's sort of stayed with her a wee bit And I think has affected her reputation in certain circles But yeah, um, ostensibly though she's, she's somebody that comes from quite a liberal background uh, Her parents owned a quarry and business So they were they were reasonably affluent And she grew up on a farm I mean, growing up on a farm in the south of England There's certain connotations, I guess But they also brought her up on a diet of quite sort of Lefty, adventurous music Things like Captain Beefheart And people like Bob Dylan And yeah, I think those acts played a big part in her identity. I mean, throughout her career as well, her credentials as a sort of slightly reactionary alternative figure were bolstered by things like artwork, her use of her own body image as a sort of tool, like a device, because well, she's not an, she's not an unattractive woman. She plays on her appearance a lot. Oh, definitely. Um, uh, it's what funny because, like, in preparation for this, I was watching a thing on YouTube that was like a documentary that someone had, a photographer actually, had filmed in like the early nineties. And um, so there's a lot of like live footage and her getting ready before performances and things like that. And she's like really into dressing up. And she speaks really briefly about how she's always loved dressing up. And I think that kind of fits really well with what I would say is a kind of storytelling aspect of her kind of creative output. There is a kind of immersive story-like kind of quality to our music, I think. And like dressing up and using your body and performing in that way is kind of part of that. Mm. There's a lot of role playing her music, definitely sure. assumed characters. She does it quite a bit. Yeah. She does it both vocally and just uh, lyrically. And a couple of the albums are sort of vaguely conceptual uh, in their sort of assumption of personas and things like that. Um, Even her I mean, voice well, sometimes, her accent when she's singing, it's not like yeah, an English uh, accent she's using, you know? Yeah, in the course of the album we're talking about is this desire. She changes voice from track to track, mm. and there's a couple that are quite distinct. I think that the body image thing is interesting as well. In the context of PJ Harry, because she she seems like she ticks every single box for a sort of outspoken feminist icon. Yet it's a tag that she's sort of repeatedly rejected through her career, specifically the parlance, the you know, specifically the the, the title of feminist. Yeah, it's quite funny actually because um, I I didn't start out as a PJ Harvey fan. In fact, I was at Tea in the Park in two thousand and four, and she performed. Yeah. So uh, I remember being like, oh, I hate her. And um, like my whole, the thing is, I wasn't much of a feminist back at that point in my life. And I think it's really interesting because I was reading like an article yesterday that um, PJ Harvey had spoken in in like the early 90s. I think it was with NME or something. And she was basically shrugging off feminism, snorting at Riot Girl and kind of saying stuff like, oh, I was always more friends with boys and things like that. I never really liked girly stuff and all this and really, really distancing herself from the feminine. And I found it really funny because one of the reasons why I think that I didn't like PJ Harvey back then as well is because 
I was actually doing the same and I associated her with feminism. I actually, I remember saying to them, this is so terrible, uh, I remember saying the phrase to someone, so I'm like, oh, I don't like her, all she does is she's a screaming bitch who just sings about her periods or whatever, do you know what I mean? Like, I had that internalised <laughs> misogyny or whatever. Fuck listening to this shit, do you know what I mean? Um, I was really, really dismissive of her, knowing absolutely nothing about her as young people are dismissive, do you know what I mean? Like, I hate that, don't know anything about it. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I found it really funny, like the parallels, because however I had like perceived her, and I think this is this is what it comes down to. She's she does maybe doesn't sing about feminism, but her stories, her lyrics, and everything are to have a really strong feminist streaking through them. You know that it's just like major so contradiction a- then. Yeah, there's a little bit of semantics involved in it because whilst you can you can sort of agree to drop the word feminist in the nitty, there is absolutely she's irrefutably a feminine icon. She's irrefutably an icon or a, a an amazing role model for young women in music, certainly in art, in the way that she's body positive, in the way that she's completely driven and self-sufficient and there's so many things about her as an act that that, that make her the perfect candidate. Like the way she explores relationships and things like that especially like when you look at, I know we'll come on to this, but like Rid of Me the things mm, in that album. are the album yeah, is very much reeling against a lot of fem- stereotypes of women and relationships and all of that kind of stuff and um, mm-hmm. it's really angry which is uh, unusual, I guess, at that point. So I guess she, yeah, she's... she's aggressive, uh-huh. which I think the early 90s was probably the perfect time for her to be an aggressive female musician because there was a bit of a... Whether she likes Riot Girl or not, there was a tone set and it, it really opened a lot of doors, which, I mean, she, she benefited from, I feel, like, undeniably. Not... Not to say that's not on merit, but I mean, that was a, an important time for it to come through and a lot of work was done by other people prior to it and during it as well. Um, I think, I mean, that, that whole thing about opting in or out of being a feminist, I mean, it sort of raises the question, like, the, the notion of being a feminist, it's whether or not you want to be it, it can sort of be, like, foisted upon you. I mean, I doubt yeah. very much Joan of Arc went about telling anyone she was a that's feminist, it. but it'd be hard to argue that she wasn't a feminist icon, mm-hmm. or an icon to feminists. <clears throat> Definitely. Uh, so I feel like she's fighting a wee bit of a losing battle there. I mean, okay, she can make clear that she doesn't identify with that term. That's fair enough, but it's not going to alienate the millions of feminists that look up to her. I, I, I don't really... I, we don't, I doubt she wants to either. I, know, sorry, I so. don't know how to kind of express this, but I guess there's like a theoretical element of feminism, right? You can like read books, uh, you can read Simone de Beauvoir or whatever but you know then you might have some like you might have a sex worker that hasn't read the second sex or whatever the feminine mystique but they know more about how they're oppressed as a woman than anybody else do you know what I mean so there's the theoretical part of feminism and then there's the descriptive this is how life is as a woman and I think that that's kind of something that I thought about when I was listening to PG Harvey she's maybe not not wanting her work I think to be analysed in that in that way or to think that she's promoting a, a particular point of view or a stance I think it is like I said before it's more of a kind of storytelling tradition and in this, those stories she's exploring things that are relevant to feminism or are not relevant to feminism do you know what I mean so and there's also definitely with her a sense that she's suffered a wee bit from straying from the orthodoxy of sort of left wing creative types. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the fox hunting thing, as I mentioned, her, her comments in the nineties were one example. The feminist thing is another example. There's just every so often she's I, I don't know just fallen foul of this kind of group think of yeah. you know you're you're to some extent cancelled or othered because you hold certain opinions that are not considered. Uh, acceptable within that orthodoxy uh, it's she's a good example of that being I mean maybe it's always a negative thing but she's certainly a prominent example of that being a negative thing because there's so much good can come from her as you say there's so much lived experience and so much useful input that the other and other does people who are trying to learn no particular service and and also I think that you've kind of got to um, take into consideration that a lot of these comments that she made they were like right at the beginning of her career as, as she, she's gone on, 
she's been less and less outspoken or like less and less spoken about her yeah. feelings about things so there is a bit of youthfulness to that as well so I don't know how much yeah, you can read into that so I mean but that's that's undeniably a huge part of PJ Harvey's story both the the kind of orthodoxy and the, the strain from it and the sort of notion of her as a feminist slash feminine icon um, in, in July 1988 PJ Harvey joined a band called Automatic Dlamini. I don't know how you pronounce it. It's D-L-A-M-I-N-I. Uh, this is based in Bristol at the time, and it was a band that was fronted by a fella called John Parrish, who PJ Harvey since described as her musical soulmate. She's worked with him on umpteen things, including her own records. Uh, she's performed with him, been recorded by him. Uh, they've done a couple of standalone albums together. Uh, he produced uh, To Bring You My Love, which is the album before this one, He's also produced people like, or worked with people like Goldfrap, who I think he did drums and guitar for. Just the Eels, he produced Sparkle Horse, who are a band that she had uh, some work with. He even produced Tracy Chapman at one point in the early 2000s. He kind of peaked around about between about 2000 and about 2003. He was very in demand, and you saw him in a lot of really cutting edge indie albums, especially in the UK. Uh, and as I say, they're long time collaborators. Um, of the stuff that she performed with that band, uh, there is an album called Here Catch Shouted His Father, which I believe was never actually released. Um, I managed to track down some of the audio though, so I'll cut it in. It's it's indie rock. It's not as exciting as her stuff, but it's it's fine. It's it's not you know it's there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but I could see why she felt a bit stifled. She also said that at the time her songwriting was a little bit narrow, a little bit naive. She was doing stuff that was quite folky. She made jokes about using things like tin whistles and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, and I think she wanted to kind of progress. But she said she did learn a lot whilst working in that group. John Parrish, by the way, went on to do a number of the later records as well. He did White Chalk, uh, Let England Shake, and the Hope Six Demolition Project. Uh, they've got two records together. Did you get a chance to listen to their kind of their duet their albums? Collaborations? Uh, no. Yeah, Dance Hall at Lou- Louse Point and A Woman A Man Walked By. Did you hear either of those? No. Uh, well, Dance Hall at Louse Point I'd heard quite a bit of previously, and I am not a fan. Uh, there is a, a track on it, the second track called Rope Bridge Crossing, which I think, yeah, it's it's decent. It's got a fair bit of Tom Waits to it. It's got some like thumb harp and a bunch of blues and it's got a really nice use of room acoustics. But songwriting wise, I have, I just, there was just nothing that stayed with me for any length of time, including just the duration of the song itself. <laughs> uh, and the, the, a woman, a man walked by, just really passed me by. There is one track on it called The Chair, which was it's pretty cool. It's actually quite uncharacteristically mathy and off time for her. Uh, Mark, did you catch any of that stuff? Yeah, I, I listened to I listened to both of them. Um, I guess the only things that really stood out for me was I quite like Black Hearted Love on A Man and Woman Walk By. It's kind of got that sort of almost like a kind of countryish feel, I guess. Kind yeah. Of folky almost, but not, not overtly English folky as she does, <laughs> as she goes on to do much later on. And uh, yeah, I mean, Louse Point, that's fine, you know, it's 
It's just kind of there, really, isn't it? Um, I thought it was a wee bit of a mess. I didn't, I didn't like yeah. it at all. There's a song called "Is That All There Is," which is often in compilations, like on Spotify and Spotify. And I was like, "Why is this even here? <laughs> is that all there is?" That. <laughs> so from Automatic Dlamini, she moved on and actually formed a band in 1991 with Rob Ellis and Ian Oliver of that group, uh, and the band. Couldn't decide in a name And she decided for them And called it PJ Harvey Which was I believe that was yeah. news to you Vicky Because that was news yeah. to me I didn't realise that The original incarnation Of PJ Harvey a Was as a group mm-hmm. entity uh, I just always assumed It was Harbour The oh, backing band Ian Oliver From that band Was kind of quite quickly Replaced by a guy Called Steve Vaughan I think he actually Oliver went back to play With Delamine Um their first gig is a sort of little bit of lore. It's apparently a total disaster. Uh, there was about only about fifty people in the room when they played, and they emptied the room within about like the first song. And a woman actually came up to the stage and supposedly told them that everybody hated them and they would pay them <laughs> to stop playing. <laughs> um, that same year, they relocated to London. Now, that's a bit of an idol for anybody from Scotland. Well, any musician from Scotland, I hope, because it was just such a trope in music that yet yeah, if you were serious about being a musician, you'd move to London. But and are hey, they from Bristol? They rec- uh, well, the band was from Bristol. Or Automatic Glamini was from Bristol. She's obviously from Dorset, uh, but they they re- relocated on mass to London in '91 to try and get a wee bit of success. That, as we covered in the Britpop episode, was the very start of the Britpop explosion in London, 1991. You know, it was '92 that Suede did that famous cover shoot um, so they were there at a really crucial time uh, they were spotted there by a record label called Too Pure who actually went on to release a band called McCluskey that we've covered before as well and Too Pure helped PG Harvey the band uh, including PG Harvey the person release a single called Dress which then goes on to appear in the first album It was voted single of the week in Melody Maker. It was actually a bit of a success, albeit I think she's made it clear that it was a success because of the Melody Maker article, not because of the efforts of the label, who I don't think were massively, I don't think were particularly good at plugging it. Only a week after that single, that, that review in Melody Maker, she did a, or they did, a appeal session, which you can actually find online, the full appeal sessions, which is uh, remarkably early. band formed that same year it's nice work if you can get it to be in London at that time so you can see why bands were going there because within a year you've got bands up here being playing for years and years and years and never get asked to do those things they're doing it in their first year they released another single called Sheila Nagig or Sheila Nagy I'm not really sure Uh, which was also a critical success and actually went, uh, became a much bigger hit in the USA than it was in the UK. And both of those tracks appeared on the debut album by the band in 1992. A debut album, by the way, which wherever you read about it, you'll always hear that Kurt Cobain voted it number 16 in his journals as his f- of, of his favourite albums of all time. The Dry album's really good, actually. Really good. Uh, yeah. It's what it, I think it was the first thing I heard by her. Sheila Nagig was on a I can't remember what the name of the compilation was It was a very random compilation called Alternator Which had Everclear and Feeder on it I think as well <laughs> Anyway, good company uh, But there's other good tracks in that album uh, Oh My Love, the, the opening track Which is this big an- angsty kind of slow burner I think it's really good Good, good song, good song that, yeah Yeah. And I, By the way, did you um, did you look into what a Sheila Nagig is? A woman who's shown her fanny <laughs> Exactly <laughs> <laughs> A woman after my own heart. <laughs> so she's like, yeah, she's. That's all the lyrics are. You exhibitionist, and she's sort of conflicted in her uh, lyrical responses because, on one hand, she's sort of, well, this, you're just gonna have to deal with it. But then, on the other hand, there's like an apologetic tone to it. It's almost like somebody's drunk and they're showing mm-hmm. off and they're fluctuating between being Aye. a bit embarrassed, ashamed of themselves, but also being, you know, pure brass neck. You any time for it? The album? Um, I 
I, I do I quite like it um, it's not an album that I've spent loads of time with I have to say but yeah I think it's good it's a good it's a good kind of debut album I think as well and you can definitely hear the kind of genesis of like some mm. of the stuff that's to come after that as well Mark, so you think? yeah yeah definitely it was okay yeah um, can you see why Kurt Cobain liked it She'd, I mean, she obviously mm-hmm. was listening to music like Nirvana and Grunge because some of the chord progressions are quite similar in terms of what the, the kind of dynamics that they would play with. Um, and that's later, that's kind of compounded on the next record. And you've got Steve Albini in the mix there as well, you know, which kind of doubles down on that. But that's not a bad thing at all. And um, it, it, it would be really, it's really weird to think she was in London during Britpop and she was doing something that's completely fucking different from Britpop. Like, yeah, she didn't so really get so. swept up in it, did she? She was one yeah. of the outliers of that of that time. Although I think she did benefit from just the increased sort of media presence and record label frenzy around it. Mm-hmm. And as you say, yeah, so she followed that way. What I think is her most vaunted album when you look at like, the online list, she followed it with Rid of Me. She was signed to Ireland uh, in mid-92, after a bit of a bidding war, in fact. Just coming off the back of the success of the singles, a bit of breakthrough in America, the fact that people like Nirvana and things were turning up at her shows in 92 in New York. Um, that album, Rid of Me, was recorded by Steve Albini, although not in Chicago at Electrical Audio Studios. It was recorded in Minnesota. Pachyderm Studios. Yeah, Pachyderm, yeah. I mean... That album has so, so much character. There's a track called Yuri G on that album, which is my favourite tune on it. And it is the absolute archetypal Steve Albini treatment. The drum tone when it... Because that song has guitar and then the drums kick in. It's the perfect way to showcase how Steve Albini makes drums work, especially that era of Steve Albini, the huge open acoustic quality of those drums. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's certainly my highlight. I don't know about you guys. My, my favourite song in that album is Ecstasy. Uh, where our vocals are outstanding on Amazing. that song. Part of our vocals in that song really remind me of, I don't know if you know, Diamanda Galas. Yeah. You ever heard of her? Right, so like sometimes like she really has this kind of pained way of singing that kind of puts me in mind of, of, of her. I just I I love ecstasy and it's just it's kind of I don't know Twin Peaksy kind of roadhousey kind of feel to it as well. Yep, Rob Till It Bleeds, my favourite. Something about it. That's, that's the song that I think sounds so like it's a live recording. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the genius of Steve Albini. That's, that's absolutely totally. what it does, yeah. Uh, around that time, I mean, that was that album garnered a lot of critical acclaim and it also put her firmly in the uh, solar system of cool alternative acts working with people like Albini who then went on to work with the Neutral. And actually, Kurt Cobain was so impressed with Albini that was one of the kind of decisive factors was because he's worked with people like PJ Harvey. But I actually they, got to number three in the album chart, believe it or not. But the performance in America wasn't particularly outstanding. No, it was 150 odd in yeah. the Billboard chart. She went on tour a few times that year, but a lot of friction started to emerge with the band. There's some kind of not so massively flattering quotes. I mean, they they, they, talk, they talk of during the US tour in '93 an ever widening personal gulf. But then PJ Harvey's also been quoted as saying, "It makes me sad. I wouldn't have gotten there without them. I needed them back then, but I don't need them anymore." Which 
it's pretty heavy. Maybe it's just honest, but I don't imagine there's a nice way to hear that if you're the people in the band. I don't know if I can, or if I, if that was this tour, but was she not? Did she not make herself quite ill on that tour, and she had to like go and recuperate for a while after it and stuff? Like, I don't know if that that took its toll on her. I, I, they toured again that year, supporting you two. So I mean, they were on the road quite a bit that year. They they, they went out on a whole string of dates at the, at the end of nineteen ninety three. But it must be after all of those tours. Then I think that she was you really kind of had to go and recuperate, go home after. Well, that. I'd imagine if that was your first time hitting the big time and touring, it would have a it would, it would yeah it would be a shock to the system. You know, I mean, she's probably, as she's gotten older, gotten a little bit more used to it. She's had a little bit more money, so the tours would have been maybe a bit more comfortable. Uh, but back then, I'm sure it was arduous. They actually, they, they supported you 2 and the U2's manager, Paul, someday, I can't remember what it is, uh, ended Paul, up becoming Paul her. Paul McGuinness. He ended up becoming her manager, which probably propelled her on quite a bit. Tellingly, I think, PJ Harvey was invited on Jay Leno's show in September 93. She did it solo. So I think that kind of shows you what was going on at the time. Um, I don't know how much that was guided by the manager, maybe saying, you know, you always get that kind of cartoon villain idea of manager saying, you don't need those guys. Fire that bass player. He's rubbish. He's holding you back. I don't really know. Um, in October of 93, she released an album called Four Track Demos, which is a really remarkably strong album of demos of the stuff she was doing. I think the standout in that one for me is the version of 50 Foot Queenie, which I think is brilliant. In 1995, uh, her next album came out, and this really was a breakthrough for her. It's an album called To Bring You My Love. Is this the one that you, is your favourite? I think for me, yeah, it's probably what I would consider her best it's kind of the apex of like what she was doing after those first two albums I think do you know what I mean it was kind of leading up to that and I just I absolutely love that album there's a really interesting yeah. group of people on it or involved with it she produced it, it Albini wasn't involved this time round it was uh, her and John Parrish and a producer called Flood that we've mentioned numerous times in the show yeah. in the past mm-hmm. uh, it also features Mick Harvey who was a member of the Bad Seeds now she later went on to have a, a, a long-term, well, not long-term, a sort of medium-term relationship with Nick Cave. Uh, PG Harvey also, as of this record, was no longer a band. It was it was a person. Uh, and I think that's that's pretty significant. Um, the themes, and it's, it's a pretty sombre album. The themes... Very bluesy. It's very bluesy. It's very sullen. Uh, there's themes of, like, losing a partner. Now... I'm not entirely sure about the chronology. She dated a photographer for a long, long time. Um, I think he travelled with her quite a bit. And I don't know if it was around about this time that they parted. But anyway, it's certainly a, a recurring theme in the record and helps add that sort of emotional weight. The cover art's very uh, emotive as well. Just her in a, a red dress floating on her back in a pool of water. There's also a huge influence of Captain Beefheart and this now said that her parents helped her get into Captain Beefheart when she was young uh, the first lyric on this album the opening line uh, I was born in the desert is also the opening line of the album Safe as Milk by Captain Beefheart I was born in the desert came all up from New Orleans came upon a tornado uh, and the track Meet the uh, Meet the Monster has the, tr- the the lyric Meet the Monster Tonight, which is another Captain Beefheart lyric. And there's all kinds of nods to Captain Beefheart uh, progressions throughout the record itself. There's a lot of interesting uh, references to that uh, influence. Um, it really expanded the sonic palette. There's vibraphones. There's a, a, an old secondhand Yamaha keyboard that she bought, which plays a really big part in the awesome bass sound on the track Down by the Water. Uh, 
uh, and there were things like bells and chimes. It's a, it's, I mean, it's a really strong album. It's really bold artistically. Um, there's there's loads of tracks that garner a lot of respect in in her canon. Uh, the absolute standout tune for me is the final track, the dancer, which I think is one of the best things she's ever done. really ghostly guitar, there's a really warm organ through it. Her voice is incredibly rich, uh, she kind of sings it more of a baritone, but then at the end of the track she gets really eccentric with her vocal take, it just becomes like a bit demented. But it, it I think that's where the Diamanda Glass comparisons come in for me with yeah. that as well. But it's, and it's de- dead strong on the religious imagery as well. It is, yeah, yeah it really sure. is. Even though she's not a religious person, she did uh, make a lot of reference to it in that. Um, tracks like Come on, Billy, that's a bit of a screamer. It's a good song, really good song. I love it. I love you endlessly. Come on, Billy. You're the only one. Don't you think it's time now? You met your only son. I love Long Snight One's definitely one of my favourites. I think it's brilliant. Te- I really like Teco. Close, good, yeah. That is a weird one. It's it's a strange song. It's it's a it's a it's a vibe that I think played a bigger part in is this desire. You know, it's kind of you can yes, hear the, the wee embryonic, absolutely. weird, subdued, creepy sort of off killer. Definitely, definitely. No, um, I I think like like you, the dancers just like a classic. Every party I ever went to when I was like in my early twenties would always put the dancer on at some point and. Yeah, I think it's a really, really strong record. Like, we rid of me, there was lots of like good songs on it, but I think there were serious weak points. Yeah. Whereas To Bring You My Love is pretty consistently brilliant. I think Rid of Me is a more sonically uniform record. Aye. It has a style, and it very rarely strays from that style. It kind of it, it undulates a wee bit, but this album takes far more radical steps in different directions, and it's much more diverse. Now, we'll swing by Is This Desire, which came out in 1998, the one we're talking about. We'll go straight to a really huge album in her back catalogue, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea in 2000. Which is, I mean, pretty much unanimously considered her most mainstream, uh, with the most, you know, the most mainstream crossover appeal, especially because of the just the tone of it. It's much more bright. It's much cleaner. She actually said that a lot that the decisions to make it cleaner, brighter, janglier, more indie, um, more upbeat, even were a response to what she called the horrible tones that were used on "Is This Desire." Now, when she says horrible, she's not meaning it like she didn't like it, but they were purposefully unsettling a lot of them. They were very, very OTT and sometimes quite dissonant. This album's not really like that. This album really leans into the songwriting in a big way, even just the cover. The cover That's looks, exactly what I'm looking at right now and going, God, I... Yeah, it looks a wee bit like a, a handbag advert or something like that. It's, aye, it's, it's, it's it does, nice. It's, it's not incongruous, but it's just... It's, 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 it's definitely more grown-up looking. It is, yeah. There's, there's maturity to it. And, and there's just an optimism to it that I think people didn't nat- naturally associate with P.J. Harvey. She's quite a downbeat figure, you know. She tend to she came across as being quite cynical, quite kind of pessimistic. And so that was a shift. Uh, it's got Tom York on it three times, mm-hmm. which turned a lot of heads around about the early 2000s. Uh, I'm going to be honest, the, the track, uh, track seven, This Mess We're In, I fucking hate that. In the directly you met me I think it's Wednesday the evening the mess we're in and I really don't like it and I think Tom York does nothing for the album on that song however I do think uh, the fifth track Beautiful Feeling he works far far better on that mixed in with her vocal America. 
I don't need to hear a Tom York song on a PJ Harvey album, especially when it's a song that I don't think melodically has that much going for it. I do think this is a fantastic record, but that's probably the low point for me. Now, this won the Mercury Music Award in 2001. Funnily enough, this was presented with the Mercury Music Award on September the 11th, 2001. Oh, man. Yeah, and she was on tour in Washington, D.C. when it happened, and they had to, like, connect them by satellite to the to the event because it was still going ahead. Uh, so she said it was just a totally surreal experience trying to act happy or particularly interested in getting this award. <laughs> She's like, it was cool that I got it, but it was totally overshadowed by the fact of, of the day. So yeah, weird coincidence. Um, it also, uh, that year, she topped Q Magazine's 100 Greatest Women in Rock, which is a wee bit rich if you consider the, <laughs> some of the amazing women that have been in rock music over the years. But, you know, it was kind of... Maybe it's just of the moment. See the stories from the city, stories from the sea. I think that's it's very of its time. It sounds very like the early 2000s in a way that I don't think her other albums are. I don't think it's a great album. I thought if, when I re-listened to it last week that I was going to like it. I've never really got into it. And I thought, I bet I listen to this and I totally fall in love with it. And it, I found it really boring. I have to say, I mean, I think any album that's got big exit, Good I Fortune. Love, see, the first Hus- two songs are brilliant. Horse Hustle and the Hustler's Whore. Uh, this is Love, which is probably the best PJ Harvey song to put on in a kind of club setting. People can dance to This Is Love. I just, I think it's a fucking fantastic record. I really do. It, yeah, I agree. It's more conventional, so probably is a little bit more set in its time period. Uh, but I mean, I think, yeah, it, it still really, really works for me. Uh, but it does, it does need the right mood. It's more of a sunny album. There's very few PJ Harvey albums that I'll bang on on a sunny day, but that one, yeah. that one totally does it. I think it does have the feeling of like a big city, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Uh, it's quite. Yeah. It does feel metropolitan. You're right. I like um, it. I think. I think it's good as well. I actually liked it. This this mess we're in as well. I think it's a good song, but there are better songs on it for sure. Uh, you're right. I think. I think Vicky's right though. It does feel as though it's very much of its time. Like it's got that sheen to it from the early two thousands, which a lot of indie records kind of had. Like there was a lot uh, yeah. of kind of like female-led um, bands around about that time as well, like Juliet Lewis and Yeah Yeah Yeahs and the Donnas and all of that coming out. There was a bit of like a sound, if you know what I mean. And I think she kind mm-hmm. of gets kind of mixed up in that a bit for me. And I don't really listen to her records for that point. She has done that a couple of times, actually, like where she's dabbled in a sound that was kind of zeitgeisty. Now, around about this time, uh, in fact, soon after that album, she performed on what became the Desert Sessions 9 and 10. Josh Homme used to bring a bunch of people together and I'd imagine get drunk and wasted and just jam out a whole load of music. Some of which went on, the better parts went on to become Queen's of Stoney's tracks. I think Make It With You is from around about that era. But they, they actually released a single from those Desert session, Sessions featuring Josh Homme and PJ Harvey called Crawl Home, which is really good. She was also on the album It's a Wonderful Life by Sparkle Horse in 2001. But Sparkle Horse were a beautiful band. Really sad what happened to Mark Linkus and she actually later did a charity song and to commemorate him after his suicide. But the tracks I Pennies and Piano Fire on that album are two of the highlights. Just while we're on the subject of those kind of collaborations, uh, one of her other really notable collaborations, in my opinion, is in 2004. She was in Mark Lanigan's solo album, Bubblegum. Mm-hmm. She did three tracks in that, but the single that came off it, Hit the City, I think is one of the best. Yeah, it's a really great song. Dark descends through the promised land. Now, 2004, as we were saying, Vicky, this is around about the time you saw it at Tea in the Park. She brought it's, out a record yeah. called Uh-huh-Her. 
<laughs> it's a little bit hodgepodge. It's the f- it's the first record where she recorded every single thing on it. Sorry, it's the first record other than uh, full track demos, but you know it was conceived of as an album, and she'd been kind of piecing together all these different tracks over a long period of time. I think it's a weaker collection. It doesn't really have a through narrative. Uh, there's a track in it called You Come Through which I think is one of the nicest on it it's mm-hmm. got these really cool percussive tones on it vocals on the record I don't think there's I'm not sure maybe there's a quality control issue when you're monitoring your own vocal takes but I feel like if someone else had been involved in the recording process they may have told her that she could do vocal better vocal takes on it I think some of them are remarkably weak and I'm not convinced they would have gotten to the final mix if, if there was a producer involved I, I, did you guys have any feelings on that record that's it's probably the one I'm least interested in in her entire catalogue she totally lost me here I, I was I was checked out after this yeah, so 2007's White Chalk is a, a, another one. Uh, I think it actually starts off really, really promising. It's very different. It's piano-led. Uh, it's much less rock. It's got a totally different aesthetic, that very button-down, austere... It's Victoriana kind of thing Yeah, going on. dress that she wears mm-hmm. in front. Um, it features Jim White from the Dirty Three, which is another reason that I had really high hopes for it, because Dirty Three, as we've covered on the show, are superb, and Jim White's got such a distinctive uh, quality to his drumming that it makes almost everything quite a bit better. She's commented in that album, I'm not sure whether it's set a hundred years in the past or the future. I can I can kind of get that. Yeah. There's other things, other instruments on it, like auto harp became a big feature in this album and it's something that she's maintained quite a lot of throughout, throughout her career since. As I said, I think it starts really promising. I think The Devil is a really good song. It's got a really anguished vocal once it starts moving. Other than that, it, it, it loses tem- it, it loses momentum really quickly though. Uh, the fifth track, the title track, has a very odd vibe. It doesn't really sound like PG Harvey. It's good, psychedelic, uh, but quite atypical. Like this album. I, one of my favourite PJ Harvey songs is Grow, 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 which is the third song on this. It's got a really kind of eerie quality to it, and I love it. I, I really enjoy listening to this album as well. Um, yeah, I think I, I can get what you mean. Like, it isn't our strongest, not by far, but I can still really enjoy it because I think it's a quite a nice atmosphere. Yeah, I definitely enjoy it more than the, the two that came before it. <laughs> 